0: It just goes to show the sort of parental nature of contemporary Christian music. Parents were not as interested in art, you know, like the the kind of the the quintessential imagined contemporary Christian music mom that was relegate, you know, like monitoring music in her household. She was less interested in the quality of. The art and more interested in the safety and thriving of her children. And there was this whole body of literature and radio programming and TV shows that were explaining to mostly suburban middle-class white moms what they needed to do to protect their children and to raise them as Christians. And contemporary Christian music was often offered in as a in a part of a suite of media. Um, to, to these moms and what happened, you know, eventually the children decided that they didn't, they didn't want to do that.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, podcast listeners of all ages and stages. Welcome to episode 61 of the Jolly Thoughts podcast. We've got a doozy for you today. A first, a first in uh, this very limited experience of the Jolly Thoughts podcast. Normally, um, you know, this is a pretty quick farm to table type scenario. So very often I'll be speaking to somebody on a Monday or Tuesday, splice up the conversation and have it roll out that Friday. Sometimes it marinates for a week or two. You know, uh, there's been a couple times where I've ended up having to have a couple conversations in the same week and you don't want to, you know, we don't want to go feast or famine here. So I I would stretch it out a little bit. But this is an unusual one because I had this conversation in the summer of, uh, I think early summer actually, of uh, 2023. And yet here it is being rolled out to the public almost six months later. Uh, in the early winter of 2024. Why? Well, because I had the opportunity to speak with my guest, Dr. Leah Payne, at that point, and I did not want to waste it. But I also knew that her book, God Gave Rock and Roll to You, A History of Contemporary Christian Music, was not going to be released until the winter of 2024. Uh, It was originally going to be slated for the fall, but it got pushed back in the publication date. So we said, hey, let's just keep this Keep it for such a time as this. And my friends, it is now such a time as this. So, um, I mean, you could listen to it uh, the day it's released, or you could listen to this eight years in the future. Will podcasts exist eight years in the future? I think so. Do iPods still exist? They don't. That's not what this conversation is about. Point is, some of the things might sound a little bit anachronistic if you're listening to it in real time, but, uh, you know, sometimes that's how conversations on the internet work. Hey, This is an insane conversation for me because I'm so, as you will hear, uh, geeky about contemporary Christian music, Um, and I was really, really grateful for the opportunity to do this as a deep dive. Uh, You want to find out everything about uh, Leah, I've got a bunch of links in the show notes. You'll find out a lot about her, probably more than you'd expect to find out about her, including maybe her Enneagram type, Enneagram type, uh, in the conversation. So, um, the one thing I didn't get a chance, th- there was one major development that happened uh, between when we spoke and when this is airing, which is not only is she releasing what will end up probably being the definitive academic work, at least for the foreseeable future, on the phenomena of contemporary Christian music. Not only is she a, a professor at George Fox University in Portland Seminary, not only does she have her own smashing podcast uh, that's called Weird Religion, which is a fun, fun lesson. Um, She also was part of a maybe limited run, maybe not so limited run podcast put out by PRX uh, just this last fall called Rock That Doesn't Role And it's a podcast that walks you through the story of Christian music, which is just absolutely fantastic and definitely worth listening to if you find this particular podcast that you're about to consume worthwhile. Hey, I think I've said enough. I hope you enjoy this conversation about the history of contemporary Christian music with my guest, Dr. Leah Payne. I see that you've got like tons of space. You seem like you were either getting ready to put books up or you've taken books down.
0: My office, I'm at my office right now and I'm moving offices and the university's plant services just hasn't dropped off my stuff yet. I actually don't know where it is. So, and it's been like a month. So I'm like, I hope anyway. So I just have some books here. Like literally I was making a video for my class where I just sit here and it looks like I've got an office.
1: (laughs) i guess i I read books
0: guys i
1: i read i I know yeah i I don't even
0: know like those books some of them are like new testament books i'm not a new testament scholar but i just put them back there because i wanted it to look like i had i was like a scholar (laughs) (laughs) anyhow so i was like oh shoot maybe i need to turn this way
1: (laughs) do you remember that trend on i mean i'm sure the 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 account still exists but like two two years ago on twitter when they had those bookcase what was it called bookcase um Oh yeah. Credibility, bookcase credibility, I think it was. And they had these <laughs> yeah. just like wonderful, wonderful photos of people who are just like, oh, look at this guy, That this yeah. person is really stacking well. Oh, totally.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm, what's, what's going on over here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you said you have two kids. They are at what age?
0: Four and seven.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're so, in the thick of it.
0: No. Yeah. Tell me it gets better.
1: <laughs> I'm <pretty> well, sure. <laughs> I'm ten, 10 and, uh. Ten and eight, so oh it's, uh,
0: okay. Oh, that that seems like it would be a fun age. Is yeah, it?
1: it gets different. How's that? It gets it gets different. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm terrified for when they start to, uh, you know, have money of their money of their own and and opinions of their own that they can actually do something about rather than just have to be, say, you know, anyway. That's yeah, this was not a parenting podcast. So no, what's they're, funny they're is now yeah, go
0: ahead, I I'm feel sorry.
1: I feel like I know more about you. Uh, this is a really fortuitous because I don't know hardly anything about you. And yet this morning, uh, as we're recording, this this is the 22nd of June this morning. My podcast feed launched with uh, a 30 minute deep dive into your psyche via the, the Enneagram Oh, and so yeah. I was like, man, what a gift, what a gift to have this much preamble about the Oh way man, I feel it.
0: so much shame, like a, like a three would. A three. Are you into the Enneagram?
1: I am not. Oh, no. me neither. No, I empathized pretty deeply with the reticence to kind of get into it. Like I was, that's kind of been my story. Um, oh yeah. But I, but I mean, I grew up with like we did. Um, so anyway, I, I, we will go back here, but just so yeah. you know, uh, Dr. Leah Payne is also a co-host of among the many things <laughs> that she does co-host of this really great podcast called the Weird Religion Podcast. And oh, uh, the episode, I don't know what number it was, but the episode that launched very recently with herself and Brian Doak, they talked about, uh, which was funny when they had to banter back and forth as to whether you pronounce it Enneagram or Enneagram. <laughs> oh, and I was, yeah. from from the get-go, I was definitely Enneagram, but uh, the, yes, yes. luckily the computer boys <laughs> solved it for us. I don't want to, sp- uh, no spoilers, so you can go and listen to the rest of yourself. But, <laughs> but growing up, Uh, There was a, I think her name was Florence Litauer, is the name that I want to say, and she was one of the people who promulgated the. I don't know if you'll remember this or if you know about it, but sort of like the the phlegmatic, uh, choleric. um, There was four kind of a thing, and they were kind of like gets like you know, body, <laughs> uh, body yeah. fluids, uh, you know, phlegmatic comes from phlegm. Uh, so apparently if you have a lot of phlegm, you're pretty chill. Uh, I don't really know what that's all about. So that was the one that I kind of grew up for the most part. My parents were hardcore into Amway. If you know what Amway is. Oh yeah, of
0: course. Of course. Yeah. So yeah. That
1: was very much like a kind of how to, how to be your best person was to understand the way to, that's what these are Is a, a way you understand yourself so that you can understand other people and relate to them in some respects. Right. I get it, but.
0: Do you remember so this one that I remember as a kid cuz I grew up in very charismatic um Christian circles and there was one that had animals and it was like are you a are you a lion are you a golden retriever I can't there's there's I know this is not a po- podcast about that but it was just like I don't know those things have always struck me as just being hilarious I, I'm the worst person um to be in a meeting where people are talking about it seriously, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always and I, the, you know, I don't want to say that they're not helpful, but um, I, I get, I, I, I don't know why it strikes me. So I think it's because people kind of develop a certain sort of confidence about it, and I experience the world as being a little bit more absurd and like hard to pin down. And so I'm like, well, I don't know. Anyhow, so I know this is not a podcast about that, but we did, we laughed. Uh, we have, Brian Doke and I had talked about doing one about the Enneagram, Enneagram, um, several, <laughs> like several times, but we were scared to do it because we thought we'd make people too mad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the yeah. irony was, is that you're like, ah, we don't really, but you seem to have a pretty good handle on on it. It was like uh, you seem to know your numbers and then know yeah. what they're pretty well by the time you got around to it. So
0: Yeah, you've got to because if you, it, it's sort of the, I don't know about you, but it's sort of like a lingua franca now. Like I resisted for years, but sure. then people kept asking me my type. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to go look it up.
1: <laughs> I feel like maybe Oregon is a little different than New Brunswick, uh, but uh, okay. that's maybe maybe uh, some point of departure in our lived experience, but no, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people who are, you know, I, I'm 40, I'm 41, uh-huh. but mo- most of my peers who are on the, the 30 and down spectrum, they seem to know it. Like, it seemed like that was kind of like a really, we uh, yeah. the East coast of Canada is like somewhere five to 10 years behind large centers when it comes to how people experience those kinds of things. It was like that with music as well, which of course is oh, probably largely what we'll end up talking about uh, throughout yeah. this conversation. But,
0: well, get ready, get ready. You're going to be talking about numbers here pretty soon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's coming your way. Uh, so, uh, Doctor, uh, Doctor Leah, Doctor Payne, Do you get is, does Pain end up getting? I mean, I, I, I cannot abide not picking low hanging fruit. So I'm so sorry. So does the Go name Payne get you in a lot of like pun work with your name, like as a teacher in particular? Like, do you end up? Wow, that yeah. was a, quite a pain. Does that happen to you?
0: Yes, yeah. yes. Um, sometimes people are like, "Why aren't you a dentist?" But um, and so yeah,
1: <laughs> I, <laughs> I, see, I'm I, a dad, I, so those jokes just rock me. <laughs> I can't help <handle> it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I try. That's good. Yeah, the the dad jokes, especially. I think that, um, yes, they assume, and then you know, I sometimes will make a little joke like it's not going to be, it's not going to be that painful ha, 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 to be. Yes.
1: You own it. Yes. Own so it. yeah. I, I mean,
0: why not? Why not?
1: Yeah. <laughs> My last name in French is uh, it's hard to translate, but it kind of means something like pretty hard or sweetheart. The, the word J O L I, because yeah. phonetically in English it sounds like jolly. It's not really yeah. what it means in French, but I, I get all kinds of. Mis-
0: pretty heart. That's what it yeah. means. In okay. Kind of,
1: which is not a very okay. masculine uh, badge to walk around with, but you kind of, you know, you own it. So.
0: Well, my family is French Canadian, like on my mom's side, and okay. so I I always like hearing those those beautiful last names. So, anyhow, that's neat.
1: So yeah, I, I I know I I know what number you are, but I don't really know from whence you came. And so obviously, um, sure. one of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit here. Uh, is about the your forthcoming book, so a book that's coming out not your first one, but your kind of most recent ones can be coming out. It looks like probably early 24s, we're looking at now. Is that right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's uh about contemporary Christian music, which is something that honestly, a lot of people I mean, tons of people have no idea what that even is. Younger people who've grown up in the church uh, won't really know what CCM is, but you and I we know what CCM is, and uh, nostalgia will be wonderful, but also. Uh, it's, it's, if you look at your social media feeds, it'd be easy to think, but like, this is just a nostalgia machine is what this is. But really you are looking way more into not just like feel good memories, but kind of how it, how it shaped, uh, people, people like you and I, and, and how it still has these lingering effects. But obviously that's because you, I'm going to guess it's because you grew up in it yourself. So you have some kind of a history with this kind of growing up in, in this kind of North American evangelicalism in some respects, right?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. The the funny thing is yes and no. So, um I was and I, I put this in the book at the beginning, but I was raised in a West Coast charismatic uh congregation. My dad was a pastor. And um so I was raised with kind of stuff that's more in your lane, your field, um charismatic worship music. That was like a huge part of my upbringing. But this is going to be this is, maybe will make some of my readers a little sad. Uh my dad did not like contemporary Christian music at all. Um and so he, for him, Christian music stopped after Jesus music. And so if you don't for those of you who don't know what Jesus music is, it's um music from West Coast, kind of hippieized Christian, mostly West Coast, not exclusively, but hippieized Christian communities. A lot of it came out of Southern um, and Central California. My parents were Bible college um, they, they, they were at a little Bible college in San Jose, California in the seventies. So they were like right in the middle of that. Um, so I was raised with that music, but anything Amy Grant and on was just not in my household. So that's pretty much all of contemporary Christian music, but I was raised in that community. So of course I knew about it. I mean, everybody knew about it. You couldn't, you couldn't, um, if you grew up in North American, Christianity, um, in the white evangelical ish space, it was everywhere. And so I, I really knew about it, but it wasn't like, um, for a lot of people and I just writing this book has been a real lesson for me, how formative it was in their lives. I didn't have really that attachment to it because it wasn't, um, such a big part of my childhood and young adulthood, but, um, I've come to appreciate that for sure, um, from just learning from people who who grew up with it. Did you grow up with contemporary Christian music? Oh, man.
1: You don't ah. even know. So, <laughs> so then I'm curious to know, there could be any number of reasons why it wasn't a part of your story. Like your parents mm-hmm. didn't like it or they thought, no, this is a bridge too far. So in other words, were you oh, able to listen yeah. to like 70s and 80s pop music but just not christian music or were you like no no it's larry norman or bust or whatever I, actually that might, oh. might be that might be anachronistic but
0: yeah no that's a great question um i was raised my dad did, thought that the quality was poor um so he <laughs> did not like it for artistic reasons Oh man, I'm a um, purist. Was, i like that yeah he was not a musician i mean uh, he he played uh music in high school and stuff like that but um he wasn't a professional musician or anything he just didn't <laughs> like it um I think there was a Michael W. S- the, the Michael w. Smith instrumental tra- uh, album, which not a lot of people know about. Mm-hmm. He did allow that one, but he just okay. did not like CCM as a rule. But, you know, I grew up going to youth group, um, like a little tiny town's youth group. And so I, it was just everywhere. I mean, one of the things that I write about in the book is it was just ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. So there was a certain kind of music and younger people won't, be familiar with this but it was the soundtrack of evangelical life like there was no part of evangelical life primarily but not exclusively white evangelical life where it wasn't just around so um yeah so it didn't really have like the soul connection for me and then by the time I got old enough to develop my own tastes um by that time I had been convinced that that contemporary Christian music was super uncool and so I sort of missed like the ideal window for it being very important to my identity. Um, sure, sure. But, but got, I grew up with kids who would go to all Christian music festivals and, you know, so, um, and, and there were some contemporary Christian music that was really big in church services. So the stuff that was used as a part of a charismatic worship service, right. I knew about that and had, sure. you know, formative experiences. Um, so how about did your you? your church, well,
1: did your church have specials?
0: Oh, Of course, special right. music, yes. The,
1: sun, the Sunday special, yeah. Of that's course. uh, that's a dead uh, that's that's dead. Um, and, yeah, and, yeah. and so, th- so like a, a song of those, you know, that I mean, goodness, there was a whole industry now. I just need to know, I mean, this is we can cut this out if you don't want to know, but you were, <laughs> you were roughly what age? I mean, a ballpark, what age you were?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm in my 40s. Okay, yeah. okay,
1: all right. So, then we definitely, yeah. so yes, there were cassettes, so like you would go to a store, you would get a cassette. And it would be, you know, one side of it would be like the single, and the other side would be just the instrumental track of it. And you would come up and you would sing. Um you know, you sing the song and it was intended to be reflective and contemplative, like you were supposed to listen to it, you weren't supposed to engage congregationally and I'm guessing that those are what you mean by some of the songs that, so there'd be a lot of like people who would be CCM artists, but they would have like a a single, like a song to be like, oh, this is going to be his eyes on the sparrow or whatever, like that kind of a a song that's going to play really well in a a church service, and so those were, I was like, that in and of itself must have been a multi-million dollar
0: Oh yeah, it was huge It was huge, and you know the funniest thing about that to me is That have you ever thought about how some of the biggest special music songs were not songs that were easy to sing?
1: Oh gosh! Which is
0: funny. So it's like you know a song, for example, "El Shaddai," um, Mm. performed by Amy Grant, a beautiful, poignant song um, that was a huge hit in in CCM, contemporary Christian music circles. But it was Sandy Patty songs that were huge special music songs. And if you've ever heard Sandy Patty sing, she's like got this incredible soprano acrobatic kind of operatic voice and and I bring that up to say very few people can sing like she can sing.
1: You right. <laughs> should authors. try. You should try. Yes.
0: And everyone tried. That's a funny <laughs> thing. You know, so it's like you go into church service like I remember, it, maybe you had one in your church, there was a woman every year uh, around Good Friday who would do Via Dolorosa. Mm-hmm. which is like an impossible song. To sing. <laughs> and, and and she would do it though, you know? Um, anyway, so those, those things are so funny to me. And, right. and I bring it up, not just to be funny, but also like it's, I started thinking as a scholar, what did all that mean? You know, like, how right. does, how does having special music change a church service? Because that is an invention. And, um, mm-hmm. And then, and, and how does that shape the life of the worshiping community? Um, and because yeah, it was, it was huge and, yeah. and even little, you know, tiny little churches because of what you said, they could be on a tape. And so any, anybody with the tape player, um, could have like this symphony backing them and <laughs> different keys, you know? So if mm-hmm. you can't pull off Sandy Patty's high notes, you could, you could be like a third lower. Right, right, right. Did you were you a special music singer? I gotta
1: ask. I mean, there there were there were times where I would get roped in, but for the most part, I was um, no. That was not in my story. So I am <laughs> I am a, I am a worship leader, and but by the time um, by the time Sunday morning services became something that I could be a part of, they were just starting to change so uh, where, where we were they were just starting to become i mean closer to kind of what we have now like certainly by the time i was like an 18 or 19 year old you started seeing uh more like so maranatha and those kinds of things were, were they were a thing of the past at that point in time and you had really early things like chris tomlin and some of those passion records were just starting to come out so uh like you my aesthetic sense by the time I was a, a, a upper teenager was kind of like this stuff isn't very cool anymore and so I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't really drawn to that sort of thing but I mean like I had already had very deep connections to it because unlike you uh i i kind of fell into the target demographic of how CCM was pitched right so something that's uh, you know amazing and and probably uh, unnecessarily uh, Be ridiculous to go into too much detail, but if you back in the day you would go to bookstores, kids, you go to a bookstore, and in my hometown of Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, you would go to a a Christian bookstore to buy music, which is already kind of a category mistake. Like, this doesn't doesn't really make sense. Uh, You don't go to Barnes and Noble to pick up your latest MP3s. I know, like, this doesn't make sense to you, but that was how it was marketed. And one of the things that was amazing was that by the time I was an early kind of older kid and early teen, they had this thing, they had these music charts that would show up. And so they would say, if you like this band, which would be like a secular, if you like uh, Guns and Roses, you might like this Christian alternative. If you like uh, Nine Inch Nails, you might like Skillet or whatever, like they would have these sort of like if this, then that kind of scenarios, and then they would have listening booths. Uh, so you'd have like, and in the best stores, you'd have like you know, up to five or six different listening booths with either cassette tapes or CDs that were on the spin. You could like put headphones on, you could listen to it, kind of sample it right there and then. And you buy, if you bought five discs, there were stickers on them, and you could get a sixth disc for free, like all these kinds of things. Where I was like, they encouraged you to kind of like buy into the system. And like, once you buy an iPhone, then you may as well keep buying iPhones cause you got the charger for it. Like it was, you kind of locked into this way of, of listening to music. And, uh, it, it worked for me kind of hook, line, and sinker. On, who know. was
0: your, did you have a favorite band or artist?
1: Um, I was pretty indiscriminate for a, a long time. So uh, by the time I kind of grew up, I actually had the opportunity a few weeks ago to speak with uh, Stu G from Delirious oh, cool. who, yeah. and so, uh, there are some bands, I think, who aesthetically stand the test of time a little bit more. But I was also a large kind of uh, tooth and nail guy. So,
0: oh, okay, yeah.
1: So MXPX, like the first time that I heard M- MXPX, my life kind of went flips, uh, turned upside down. And so I was So a lot of like punk and ska and that kind of stuff was definitely more of where I was at and that plank guy, and those kinds of bands. So I, I love all that. And listen back to it now and you go... You can tell that these are smaller budget albums, like the nine inch nails, the excuse me, the tooth and nail ones, our smaller budget albums. And so, but there's something, it's, it's really hard to kind of suss out what you, how you would listen to it now, if it didn't also evoke nostalgia, like it's hard to be both objective and subjective at the same time. But nonetheless, I just, I loved all that kind of rock and roll music.
0: That's great. You know, do you ever try it out on your kids?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They, what do the- you think of it? Yeah, Uh, they have like, they don't tend to like, I said, kids, you're supposed to like loud music like that's supposed to like. I I was led to believe that this is what's going to win the next generation for Christ is the loud music. Uh, But they don't they don't seem to be drawn to it as much. Yeah. What about yours?
0: You know, I've used my my kiddos as as test subjects to um, see, you know, I mean, they're so little. uh, But I have one one child who's just just. really, I think every teacher he's had calls him busy, Um, but, uh, and he really likes, he really likes P.O.D. Uh,
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, we listen to Boom. He requests it. He's like, let's listen to Boom. Uh, (laughs) Because throughout the writing, I mean, they were just really little when I first started. And I was, I would just listen through eras. I subjected my family to just hours of, you know, Hey, listen to this. Um, but, and then when I got to the nineties, I, you know, I was kind of curious because I grew up like, so I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and so it wasn't until I was an adult till I realized the whole grunge movement was like the culture I was raised in that became a global culture, which is weird because I was raised in a small timber town outside of Portland. And the Nirvana guys and Kurt Cobain, you know, timber town outside of um, Seattle. And so it's like, oh, it's weird to think that that the youth culture of of the 90s was like there's a reason why it made sense to me. Anyway, so I I just was uh, like into that kind of music and I didn't listen to a lot of Christian music and in- in the 90s. And then I listened to a bunch of stuff that I wouldn't have listened to just because it was Christian. And I was like, some of this is I really like it. You know, like I'm a 90s person. Right. This is like grungy, hard rocky stuff that I would have, I probably would have liked. But sure. um, by that time, I was of the age where, and and you know, that this is something I talk a lot about in the book, um, about the attempts to engage with youth, youth culture and the limits of that. Um, because of the branding problem of contemporary Christian music. Once it got associated with um, music that your parents want you to listen to, then it's like for rock, it's over. Right. Um, And, and really for any kind of like youth culture music. Um, So as you know, initially it was rock, but as different genres um, start coming on the scene, it didn't matter. Um, You know, and I I sort of think like my, my kids are really young right now. They want to spend all their time with me and it's beautiful and wonderful, but when they become teenagers, I would expect that they would differentiate themselves from me in some kind of way. So they're probably going to like their own art. (laughs) So, but yeah, that, and that's what happened with CCM for sure.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, So, I mean, you mentioned when you're researching the book that you were like, you just systematically would listen through all this stuff, but like what, what, uh, what, what else did you do? So like, how did you, See, the, the internet yeah. was, I mean, nascent at best when this stuff was happening. Uh, yeah. So uh, what, yeah. How did you kind of find these archives and treasure troves of this content to work through?
0: Oh my gosh. That's such a great question. Well, um, so first, first I used to work in the, in the contemporary Christian music business when I was right out of college in the early 2000s. And um, I, I, I started um, in part by mining the people who I knew, who would know, who had access to music, um, and also to the literature at that time. So I contacted the Gospel Music Association, the GMA, really nice people there, who let me buy every existing copy of Contemporary Christian Music Magazine, which for those of you who don't know this stuff it was like the billboard of contemporary christian music um there were a couple, few other magazines but really that was like the undisputed it was the billboard um and so from 1978 um till now i have every copy in fact you can see a bunch of them they're they're needing to be filed uh behind me and um and so i i the methodology the question of the book is what can you learn about um white evangelical, predominantly white evangelical communities by the media that they um, created. And contemporary Christian music was one of the largest and most profitable forms of mass media that evangelicals made in the 20th century. So if you look at the charts, what do you learn um, about the movement or those movements? And um, my methodology really is looking at which which kind of songs climb the chart, which albums, which artists okay. do well. Um, and and looking at that as a, as a kind of sonic consensus of what these are the people we want to be. And more importantly, these are the children we want to have. And these, this is the future that we want to have because one of the quirks of contemporary Christian music is that it was a kind of a mediated, Um, industry in the sense that the most pop music is sold from, you know, corporations or record labels to um, younger people. uh, Ideally, you know, that's always the target demographic. Um, And contemporary Christian music was mediated um, in, in large part in sites like Christian bookstores through evangelical caregivers. So you had to have mostly moms, bookstore moms. Um, you had to have their approval, but also youth pastors and dads, and mm-hmm. um, all kinds of and, and Chris, Christian bookstore owners themselves. Um, many of them, a lot of them were in, them were independent or denominationally owned, and mm-hmm. so it's the people who curated that music. Um, they were curating what their hopes and dreams for their children, really, um, and so. Um, so if you listen to what the kind of music that was purchased and sold, and you can hear that. You can hear, like, this is who we are. This is what we want to be. Um, and stuff like the stuff that you were into, Tooth and Nail, um, one of the few really successful in, independent labels, um, you can kind of hear like a minority report. <laughs> if you are familiar with that concept, like you can hear this a sort of... Um, Different that ideologically mostly harmonized with with contemporary Christian music, the kind of mainstream major label stuff. But mm-hmm. then there's some notable exceptions, like you brought up MXPX. Um, you, if you actually look through a lot of their lyrics, it's surprising the kind of subversive messages that um, that are present there. Um, so I treat contemporary Christian music like a big conversation mm-hmm. um, about who we are, who we want to be. And one of the things that I don't even know how to, to say in words, although I'm trying in this book is how much it meant to people, like how, how formative it was. I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I knew it was, I, I worked in the business. I, you know, my scholar brain could tell you, but just like the, the personal feelings that people have, um, it's kind of astounding, uh,
1: I, I don't find that you find that surprising in some respects. So this morning, I mean, what a what a gold mine I had for this thirty minutes listening this morning. You mentioned Radiohead fans, and i I count myself <laughs> I count myself among Radiohead fans in some respects. And and there is this. I mean, I, I wouldn't you know I wouldn't die for them, Lord willing. But um, but there is this thing with with music, especially music that you experienced during your formative years, that it does have this sort of like. I mean, I don't want to say nostalgic because it's actually deeper than that. Like you have, you can, how about your attachment to art that you have specifically during high, it becomes fused in some respects with kind of how you developed. And so like you hear it and it, or you watch it or you read it or you see it and it's kind of transcendent. Like that, that movie that you watched 85 times on VHS or whatever, or that song that you listened to in headphones when you were, you know, falling asleep. Uh, when you were 17 years old, or, you know, like, they they have, I'm not surprised that people would have that kind of level of attachment to, we'll call them artists, or to pieces of art. Now, it would be surprising if you're saying that their attachment is actually to this concept, as it were, or to this broader genre that is CCM, because that actually has nothing to do with any kind of specific musicality and everything to do with, as you mentioned, a kind of a, a mediatorial frame for how music is delivered to people
0: yeah it's really interesting I because yeah there's there like music especially in the mid-20th century it gets sort of fused with youth culture you know so um one of the things that I talk about in the book is the developing concept of adolescence like that there's this idea that there's a kind of liminal point of development where um and, and eventually becomes known as teenager um like the teenage years and that they, that it is this um season of extraordinary possibility but also precarity like it's a it, it it's a potentially dangerous phase of of life um and music and the music of young people um is seen by both the young people themselves and the parent generation for decades is seen as like fused to youth identity. Um, So whether or not it's rock and roll, rock, um, disco, dance music, hip hop, rap, like whatever the music of the young generation is, um, it's it's seen as part of that. But you're right. Contemporary Christian music. There's a lot of debate about how to define it. And I define it. Um, not as a sound at all, but um, as, and and then some people will say, well, it's got a particular sound. Some people say, well, it's about the lyrical content, you know, it's, you know, music that has specific things in it. I'm defining it as the market. So how was it sold? Um, And that to me is what makes makes the most sense. And what you bring up is that as a market, it's a weirdly diverse thing. So there's like (laughs) Southern gospel, black gospel, most it's overwhelmingly white, but every now and then you get um non-white artists, usually black gospel artists. Kirk
1: Franklin. Kirk Franklin made it exactly he had had in the mix. Yeah.
0: In every era, there's, you know, um Nicole C. Mullen, BB and CC, Andre Crouch. So you'll get, you'll get every now and then. Um I had a hard time, you know, when I was talking with people about it because uh, in the industry, because that is an uncomfortable talking point (laughs) um, for a lot of people. But so I finally had to be like, okay, percentage wise, we're talking about 10% would be non-white for most of CCM's um, existence. So it's overwhelmingly white, but it it, it has all this variety in terms of genre. So it's Mm -hmm. like you get Southern gospel stuff sold right next to tooth and nail records, which what, <laughs> you know, those are like so really sexy. different, very different, um, industries and ideas. But you know, one interesting thing that I found is that I, I made this survey, um, that I honestly, I used it, I made the survey to c- collect anecdotes. Cause I wanted some stories from real, real life fans, you know, saying like, or people who were raised with it, I wanted to get like 50 to hundred. And then I got over 1200. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a historian. I'm not like a data scientist, you know, so <laughs> I had to get a lot of help. Yeah. Um, to help me sort through it. But one of the interesting things that I found was that um, I asked people what they music they liked and what they hated, what they liked and what they didn't like. And they were understanding contemporary Christian music as a market. So they would say, you know, they like it based on their answers. So they would mm-hmm. say, you know, I liked this kind and I didn't like this kind. And they were usually naming all the people that would be, you know, under like the people you find in a bookstore. Yeah. Um, so it is weird, but there are some people the 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 ecosystem of contemporary Christian music, which involved just this huge network of evangelical media makers and activists and denominations and colleges, and you know, it's like it's hard to even get your head around the scope of it if you don't know what it is. But if you know what it is, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. But um, that that world there was like a sense of a coherent thing you know right. and so like going to a Christian music festival going to see your favorite band at a Christian bookstore or or like a local mega church or whatever that really was a thing and um yeah I think one one kind of interesting thing is how fleeting it was <laughs> like it's, it's pretty much over. I mean, there are yeah. still like small versions of it right. here and there. Um, but it doesn't really exist anymore. And I I just gave a talk not too long ago at Baylor University and there were undergrads there. And I was like, I asked for a show of hands. Do you does anybody even know what this is? And it was it was like 35 and up that raised their hands, sure. but yeah. none of those babies knew <laughs> <laughs> what it was. They probably all would know what worship music is. Um, right. But so
1: is that is that what you think? Uh, I mean, this is the you know video killed the radio star, and contemporary worship might have killed uh, contemporary Christian music. <laughs> I was on a podcast uh, with somebody a few weeks ago there about the worship leader research stuff, and they kept using the word CCM, but what they meant was modern worship music. And I was like, these are these are not. I guess if they were still selling music at bookstores, you would get it there. So, you know, market considerations being there. But my, I do feel like there's a, a disjuncture between these styles. Like one is not like the other. But is, is that how what you think happened? Did one kind of displace the other? Or did people like Switchfoot and POD just end up making it so that people realized, hey, wait a minute, people want off this boat as quickly as possible. <laughs> it's like, it's a convenient boat, but they don't really want to stay here if they don't need to. Um, so that so it kind of made it so that even the people who were succeeding in CCM really saw the the show being somewhere else.
0: Yeah, I, that's a great question. And let me tell you, tell you what I think, and then you can tell me if this makes sense to you, because I know that you your, your research intersects with with mine, um, a little bit because I'm really interested in the industry side of, of this. Um, so I also agree that contemporary, I think when people say contemporary Christian music now, I think they mean mostly white worship music. Is what i think they mean do you mm-hmm. does that sound like it when d- they kind of say it okay. yeah I, do,
1: I, do, I mean right now that's not what we mean so that's why it's not it's not universally that way i guess it depends on who's saying it and when
0: <laughs> yeah i think when they because yeah. i think of that as a category error sure. um you know and and i think usually when people say that now they're they're meaning like elevation music and hillsong and bethel but they're saying contemporary CCF. christian music yeah um but on the industry side of things, it's definitely a distinct, um, business Mm -hmm. with overlap, you know, points of overlap. One major one would be Christian radio. Um, but the, the, the reason, the descent of contemporary Christian music, I think is a lot of different factors. One is, um, definitely the worship, the, the ascent of worship. Um, and, and then I think a big one is contemporary Christian music did not adapt to the mainstream of, of American, um, and not just American. I, it's, it's a, the industry is primarily in the United States, but of course, one of the things I'm arguing is it had global, um, in, influence, mm-hmm. but one of the things about a lot of contemporary Christian music is it was super patriotic and really American. So yes. people will be singing, like, if, if you do you remember Carmen? do I icon right how could I how could you not so like Carmen you know every other album had this big bombastic thing about saving America you know so some of it yeah. but but worship music is transnational right that worship music is people trading what's
1: that I said it's supposed to be yeah that's the idea
0: yeah yeah I mean I think yeah. I think it is like yeah. you know it, whether or not like the United States and and North America are operating in kind of a colonial way with that. That's, I think that's definitely something that, but it is an international conversation that's going on, right? Like people are like trading songs back and forth. And that's, that's always been the case with worship music. Whereas contemporary Christian music, a lot of it was domestically oriented. Um, and, and so, um, I think that's one thing that kind of killed it. Another thing is that, um, the uh, it, it didn't adapt to mainstream music charts. So for a while, like contemporary Christian music, a lot of it, uh, kind of one of the foundational qualities of it was that it was trying to provide American teens and not just American, but um, in the United States, at least American teens with alternatives to mainstream music, which was seen as demonic or morally depraved or something like that. So um, if you think about it, then that means that contemporary Christian music always needed to be imitating mainstream music. And um, as mainstream music diversified, contemporary Christian music did not. And so, um, you know, I, somebody was telling me the other day, you know, why, why, um, like there, that there are artists now that would be defined more classically as contemporary Christian music people like maybe Lauren Daigle, um, or Katie Nicole, who are like artists in their own right. Toby Mack is still an artist, um, who maybe wouldn't necessarily define themselves as worship, um, Mm -hmm. artists to that point. I basically said, well, if, if CCM were still, um, imitating mainstream charts we'd have a lot more hip-hop and rap and we'd also have like a k-pop group you know um but we don't so Mm -hmm. um i think part of that was just the um industry did not adapt to changes in demographics Mm -hmm. and the tastes of um and then you know one thing is the internet (laughs) the internet was just like it killed ccm not, I mean, it, it pummeled the entire recording industry for a while. But one of the reasons why I, I'm arguing is that that it it took longer for it to recover and it never actually recovered is because um a big thing about contemporary Christian music was parental supervision. And if there's one thing that undermines parental supervision, it's the internet. So, um, you know, uh, which terrifies me as a parent, by the way, um, <laughs> yes. you know, and so, yeah, like you can't this discreet world where you provide alternatives to children, the technology like decimated that. Um, so, and then there are the philosophical issues that you bring up. Um, there's a lot of other reasons, but I think those are some of the main things and, you know, bands like, like Switchfoot. Um, the teens themselves just wanted to be, they wanted to be artists. They didn't, they didn't want to be alternative artists. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was the,
1: that was the headline that like, so switch foot for me, um, when I was, I guess maybe so they released at least two or three that were really decidedly, uh, in that market until beautiful letdown helped them kind of, kind of leap out of it. Right. Um, yeah. and then you watched, and realize that uh, I guess that, yeah that's really interesting. Sorry, I'm kind of thinking on the fly here, but that that is what is kind of happening is that if if what you're doing is you, hey you're here for one job and your job is to in some respects instantiate a kind of a Christian version of this um, that's actually that can be satisfying for a lot of people like that's a that is uh, imitation is in and of itself it's like cr- cr- the craft part of arts and crafts and the right? Like it takes, mm-hmm. it takes significant skills. Um, but then at some point in time, if you're like, yeah, but I kind of want, not that any of these people were like revolutionary because nothing on the radio is revolutionary, but it's, it's degrees away enough that you're trying to break new boundaries and create things and not feel like you need to be beholden to some sort of a, a mold. And so I guess if, if they do that, then, if the category itself is defined as in some respects by being a version of, and if you no longer want to do that, and then the people from a market perspective are buying the things that transcend the mold, then the mold is kind of broken, right? Like there's no, there's nothing to go back to at that point in time.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, I think, and I, you know, I'm not an art critic or, a moral philosopher or anything, but, um, so there, there are a lot of people who have mourned, um, the loss of, of that or, or mourned the state of, you know, being an imitation. Um, I think it just goes to show the sort of parental nature of contemporary Christian music that, parents were not as interested in art <laughs> you know because they, they as as they could have been. some some were um but your, I'm your just dad saying, was
1: apparently your yeah. dad was yeah was, my dad yeah. was like telltale no, tell. no. Nah, yeah no, not yeah
0: good yeah. <laughs> yeah we've had to listen to little feet which is like a Ooh. like a yeah kind of an obscure you might not yeah yeah but anyway um yeah. <laughs> I, I love my dad he's he's great but uh but you know like the the kind of the the quintessential imagined contemporary Christian music mom that was relegate. you know, like monitoring music in her household. She was less interested in the quality of the art and more interested in the safety and thriving of her children. Mm -hmm. And there was this whole body of literature and radio programming and TV shows that were explaining to mostly suburban middle-class white moms, what they needed to do to protect their children and to raise them as Christians and contemporary Christian music was often offered in as a in a part of a suite of media right. um, to to these moms. And what happened, you know, eventually the children decided that they didn't they didn't want to do that. And you know, for some for some folks, I mean, I I think of contemporary Christian music in so many different categories. There's some music that I think of as and I use this term kind of maybe liberally, but as, as liturgical music. So groups like um, Avalon or um, Truth that were, that come out of the Southern gospel tradition, Mm. um, they sort of are already churchy music, right? Like they're not, um, they, they make sense in a um, white evangelical church space as part there is of, no,
1: there is no like top 40 counterpart to what they're doing.
0: Right. It's church choirs. Yeah. 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 Or, or, or Southern gospel quartets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, which come out of like a revivalist, um, meeting network. And so those, you know, that is, um, you can be like incredible artist mm-hmm. and, And really, I mean, those folks are like, if you listen to, um, I think one that, that holds up it and it's just choral music, but testify to love by Avalon. I posted about that on social media and I was surprised at how many people were like, Oh yeah. You know, like people who would be, yeah, yeah. You know, people you wouldn't really expect because it's excellent. Like (laughs) they're incredible vocalists. They, they deliver a particular, uh, kind of church music Mm -hmm. in like a, with virtuosity, right? So you can be like really, you can execute that super well. Um, another per- like Larnell Harris, like just an incredible vocalist, mm-hmm. um, gospel uh vocalist who toured with the Gaithers and stuff. That's church music. Yeah. And that is like to be the best artist that you can be is to be a church person, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that I think you can have incredible artistic integrity and and be doing that. Um And many people did, but if you want to be a rock star, like that is a different ask, or if you want to be a pop star, um, and that involves being like on just brass tacks, like you you need to be like, um, kind of a sex symbol for people. You need to be kind of a rebel. Like there's these qualifications. Um, and it's just really hard to do if you're also, being music that is for the safety and protection and um, Christian edification of teens. Sure. So I think those bands like Switchfoot, they were really open about it in many interviews. They kind of chafed under that, under those expectations and found it really frustrating. Um, and certainly they were not alone. And um, so I, my heart kind of goes out to because the, there are the folks who were doing church music, We're like always just doing church music, but the folks who wanted to be a part of a different musical conversation, a different musical culture, um, I think mostly they found it frustrating. Um, maybe some of them wouldn't admit it, but, um, you know, for, for other reasons, but I think it was, I would find it frustrating (laughs) you know, I'm trying to do this one thing, but I keep getting put in a different category. Um, yeah.
1: But they kind of signed – the irony is that you kind of, like nobody put a gun to their head and said, you must sign to this record label, right? Like it's not really true. Uh, and so for some people, I think the implicit – at least on, on – this is not scientific, but the yeah. implicit narrative yeah. has often been like well, this, was the, this was the ship that you were able to get on. So like, you know what I mean? Like you, you couldn't get on the cruiser, but the dinghy was there you got on dingy dinghy and you made records, right? Like you toured, you played at Cornerstone Festival, you you did creation, you sold, you know, people were able to buy your records in Portland and in Moncton. And so it kind of sometimes felt a little bit weird when, as you said, they chafed against it and they kind of were, it's almost like biting the hand that's feeding you, even though you don't necessarily love what they're giving you. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, like, it's like, yeah, it's a weird uh, kind of a situation to be placed in.
0: Yeah, and I think you're putting your finger on something, it was super complex. Um, because yes, at like age 19, right? right. right. So uh, and I'm not saying they were full-grown adults, right? Yeah. But I'm just saying right. how aware of you are uh, how aware are 19 or very young people young music makers aware right. of their own identities and also their own place in this larger ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um I in some some folks, um, eventually, you know, there, there was a lot of conversation in contemporary Christian music magazine about, about that very fact, like that they're selling out if they go secular. Ironically, a lot of times, um, if people try to like develop a mainstream music, they made less money, um, doing that. So there was a lot of accusations, like they're trying to like now they made money, they're gonna to make tons of money out there. Well, a lot of times it was actually the inverse, like they gave up money that they could have made in the evangelical space, um, uh, mm. because it was a more, you know, like a carefully curated market. Um, but I, I think it just it was just really complicated because a lot of these folks were very young. Um, some of them were very new converts, and so they didn't even totally understand like the evangelical culture that they were getting into. They were just mm-hmm. like musicians who had this conversion experience. And then um so it was just a really complex, it was a mess. Is what you, I'm saying. Like would you a lot said of that conflict. it was
1: was it predatory? Were like were there times where I mean do you see de- do you see like interviews or like numbers that suggest that part of the system was looking for people like this to scoop up when they could have been other in other places or other boats to carry on with the stupid analogy
0: oh you know i don't know i i don't think i'd feel comfortable with saying predatory i think i would say opportunistic like it's a business um but i think you know most of the the people involved are um and were and are evangelical types who um who are also in a business. So yeah, they're, they're like horror stories about, um, you know, just bad deals and, and um, unfair promises, um, just like there are in mainstream um, and uh, in mainstream, like record label stories. And then there are stories where people do sort of things that don't make sense as a business decision, but do make sense, um, according to a certain set of values, uh, evangelical-ish values. So, yeah, I mean, there are definitely stories where, um, it's just bad, <laughs> you know, it's like, messy. like sad and bad and messy and, and, and maybe unethical and all that. Um, but I think, um, I think that's the thing that, um, one interesting Thought that just kind of keeps coming up for me is that there's a certain kind of optimism that people have with prosperity. Like you, if something is working, and um, especially in the U.S. Um, and and things are selling, um, a lot of evangelical folks and a lot of people in general um, will, in CCM interpreted that as like God's favor. Like God's really happy with us. Things are going great. We're selling a lot, you know? Um, and so in times of prosperity, um, a lot of times people didn't ask maybe harder, deeper philosophical questions about should um, we be doing these things? And, um, you know, I mean, that's a very common common thing to happen. So I think there is just a lot of, um, there's a really interesting interview that I found of the Um, at the Christian Booksellers Association um, and people uh, at at this point in time, it was like the height of Christian bookstores and um, which meant that that was the height of contemporary Christian music as well. And one of the um, Christian booksellers was just talking about just how much God had blessed what they were doing. And so a lot of the things that um, the practices that we might look on now with a little bit of like, um, people just weren't asking those questions. Cause there was, um, the idea that, that God was, um, blessing the work in the form of its material prosperity. And you see that in the worship business today, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of questions that aren't asked that I think probably will be asked in 10 or 15 years, especially about the business end of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not being asked right now because things are booming,
1: right? Yeah, Adam uh, Adam Perez, our mutual friend, is, is fond of pointing out the research that the he says something to the effect of the fact that uh, the uh, the evangelical world has often looked to the market as a, an opportunity to say whether or not God is doing something. Uh, yeah, and I mark.
0: mean, yeah, and I think like that. Uh, I mean, I I've actually been thinking about you know the other forms of Christian um, like mainline Christians have different, um, outlets for public, like a a public power, you know, um, but evangelicals have always been very, very savvy about the market. Um, and I agree with Adam a hundred percent, um, that, that they interpret God's work in the world through, um, the, the way that the market is going. And you see this in all kinds of media. Like I was just seeing, um, Uh, There's a Christian movie that made a certain amount of money. It was like, praise the Lord. Um,
1: Must be good.
0: Yeah, but you know, I want to make one point. Yeah, exactly. I want to make one point that there were always uh, kind of prophetic voices. And you see it if you look in the back page of Contemporary Christian Music Magazine. There's um, one person in particular, John Fisher, wrote a column, a regular column. And a lot of the things that were going on, especially the prosperity of contemporary Christian music, he was sort of saying, wait a minute. Um, there's a really interesting article that he wrote that says when Christianity pays. And so he had he has this it's very sermonic. He has this whole thing where he's like, you know, when Christianity costs you something, it's good for Christianity, according to him. And then when it pays, that's when you have to look out. Um, but but, you know, as a whole, most people did not pay attention to it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's but people, that. what's that?
1: But the bug—the bug was in the system, though. The idea that even even people who are in the system sometimes could see it, but it's just whether or not they. Could
0: Absolutely, see it. yeah. but it's just hard. There's a lot of noise when everything's like this. This was when you know um, when Amy Grant is like selling like crazy. It's hard to pay attention to that. <laughs>
1: <Sure name. laughs> so. Yeah, hard motion. Come on, beautiful. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I mean, I'd love to say, I'd love to ask about the sheer number of people who would have been a part of that system who are now not even necessarily professing christians at all i think that's an. i think that's probably a, something that we you probably don't have the numbers on but i think it's just a, a probably a, an interesting aspect of how it all might have worked or how it might have even contributed to their faith stories but
0: oh yeah you mean like the number like the percentage wise
1: yeah i mean are just like yeah sure i mean it'd be, it'd be more anecdotal than it would be statistical but like just story after story of people who now are not really uh if the records are being sold today, they would not be being sold in those record stores, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think contemporary Christian music, if you look at the listenership, it it really um, reflects a broader fracturing of evangelical identity. And that's kind of one thing that I end on, which is just if you look at the trajectory of, of some of the top artists, you see sort of just a um, it's almost like they're a metaphor for what's happening um, in the broader community like there's still this little energized a a smaller not little a smaller energized group Mm -hmm. um but i think if you want to look at like the state of evangelicalism broadly i think that you have to go to your world to worship music Mm -hmm. um because that is a better reflection of like worshiping communities um now which is why i'm super excited about the stuff that you guys do it's awesome i think it's
1: Right. What a way to end! Uh, yeah. definitely. I have no further questions, Your Honor. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's yeah, true. so the book uh, book called "God Gave Rock and Roll to You," uh, which is yes. wonderful. Not, <laughs> my ignorance is showing. Uh, that is a that is not a Larry Mullins st- uh, – Sorry, a Larry. Uh, what's the guy with the long hair and uh, what's his
0: name? Oh, Larry Norman. No, is not a Larry Norman
1: song? Who's it by? Originally,
0: a mainstream song by a band called Argent, and um, then it was eventually covered by Stryker? Petra.
1: Oh, Petra.
0: Petra. 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 And then it was covered again by Kiss. Um, and then it was covered again by a band named Bride. So anyway, it's, it's a song. I, I that think is it's super meta. Cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, super
1: yeah. That's meta. That's wild. That's wild. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, catchy. That, it's catchy. That book is going to be amazing. I look forward to seeing it. Now I heard this one last thing I could have swore this morning in this podcast, which has given me so much traction. I could have heard you say the word power team. Um, <laughs> Do, you couldn't have possibly meant the people who would show up and like rip phone books.
0: Help him a thousand percent. I meant the power team. Oh, really? We need to have a follow-up conversation.
1: Oh man. We are definitely best friends. Yeah. I was just like, <laughs> I like at, a, at my church growing up, I can't even, I, sadly, I can't remember the man's name, but he was the, he he came and he was able to pull a tractor trailer with his mouth.
0: Oh and man.
1: He, like he'd had like a special piece put in and he walked backwards and he pulled the, the guy was beefed as all I get out. it was crazy
0: that is like oh, Jesus. The, spirit, the spirit of the lord clearly is upon that man yeah yeah oh yeah he has short, oh, yeah. hair. He has short hair but yeah, yeah power teams in the book so yeah oh, yeah oh.
1: yeah definitely one, one more reason for you to pick up a copy <laughs> <laughs> it's even available for pre-order whenever this happens to go but yeah you'll keep your eyes peeled for it from oxford university press dr right. leah payne thank you Please. very very much for your time today
0: thank you so much thanks for having me uh, Amazing.